This agreement exchanges membership rights for China in the WTO. The question of whether there is such a diplomatic solution rests ultimately with Saddam Hussein. He has the choice. He can bring himself back into compliance with the agreements he entered into. I will begin my service as Secretary of State with the wind at my back. America is strong, our principles are ascendant, and our leadership both respected and welcome in most corners of the world. I have accepted responsibility for what I did wrong in my personal life, and I have invited members of Congress to work with us to find a reasonable, bipartisan, and proportionate response. That approach was rejected today by Republicans in the House. Hello, and welcome back to Barely Getting By the Long 1990s. First things first, I'd like to apologize for any sounds in the background from the building site next door to me. Right on cue. Right on cue. Um, so, but we will get through this. We, said we promised to talk about the American right in the 1990s. So my first question for you, Emma, is how did the Republican Party take the surprise election of Bill Clinton in 1992? Not well. I think, unsurprisingly to most people, it didn't go well. I think, you know, when we spoke about the the end of the Cold War and the, the so-called end of history, the conservatives in America and the right in America had assumed not only that they had beaten communism abroad, that, that great enemy, but, you know, in the words of, of their favourite president, Ronald Reagan, that Democrats and, and so-called socialists at home had also been kind of consigned to the ash heap of history. So that was a kind of working ass- assumption that Republicans had won the moral argument and they'd be in power basically forever. You know, the last Democrat had been Jimmy Carter, who was, you know, kind of white is widely re- regarded as weak and, and an ineffectual Democratic president. And then what happens is, you know, in the midst of these assumptions about the ascendancy of conservative politics, this this young kind of cool upstart calling himself a new Democrat unseats an incumbent president. So, no, it doesn't go down well. Yeah, because incumbency is, as it is in Australia, is quite a strong, it's, it's a strong force in politics. It like, it kind of sets out some assumptions about Incumbents expect that they will get a second term, don't they? Absolutely. I mean, it's very unusual for American presidents to only serve one term. Jimmy Carter has one. And then for Bush, a Republican to be another is just kind of devastating and enraging for Republicans in the US. Okay. So how do they, how do they deal with this? Um, I'm going to, I'm going to play devil's advocate here and, and assume that they, Perhaps they they wanted to conciliate with with Clinton in some way. Was that the case? Oh, maybe on the part of of some individuals, but but generally, uh, no. I think it, you know to to go back to our discussion of kind of how the how the nineteen nineties links to today. I think from the very start of the Clinton presidency, the same assumptions about who has the right to govern kind of underpin. Republicans' response to Clinton. So that that idea I was talking about, about the ascendancy of conservative politics at the end of the Cold War, very much informs their response to him. So many Republicans, especially um, prominent figures like Newt Gingrich, assume that they they are kind of the rightful holders of power and Clinton and, and followers of Clinton are kind of 
illegitimate. And so they set out from the very beginning, basically, to destroy the Clinton presidency however they can. And that is made much easier after the midterm elections during Clinton's first presidency, where much like under the Obama administration, Clinton loses control of the House of Representatives to the Republicans, who were then kind of unleashed in a sort of partisan fervor against him. So, yeah, that kind of brings me to my next question, because I think that a lot of people, you know, rightly or wrongly, have an understanding of the American presidency as kind of an elected kingship. Like, the the presidency wields enormous power. So, with Bill Clinton in the White House, where where can Republicans be and where are they, where they can sort of exercise this influence in frustrating Clinton's agenda? Well, I mean, I mean, I suppose it's kind of like if we look at Congress, the makeup of Congress now, where the House of Representatives is controlled by one party and the presidency by another, it means basically that, you know, legislation can't get through. So a president has a lot of trouble pursuing their agenda. In this... In Clinton's case, especially later in his presidency, when we see the the impeachment proceedings begin against him, it means that the presidency is kind of consumed by a narrative that they do not control. So Republicans are kind of driving the media coverage through, particularly through the impeachment and the enormous controversy surrounding that, which makes it very difficult for Clinton to get any kind of clear air around any of his other policy agendas. So it's kind of an indirect control that is orchestrated in part, at least, through the media. Okay, so I think there are kind of two instruments that the Republicans are using, and one is the other institutions of state, the other is the media, and we'll get to the media in a minute, but you mentioned the the um, the elections in 1994, so why were they important? So those elections are really important because, as I said, you know, I guess first and foremost, Clinton loses control of the House of Representatives. The Republicans um, kind of take power off him in that way. So it's a big wake-up call in that sense that, you know, they're not going to have clear air for a long time. Much, again, you know, to make that comparison, much like Obama in his first term, you know, you have two years of kind of, um, I guess, you know, joy at having the White House back again, at having a young, cool president, a young progressive president in power that's then, you know, after only two years, you kind of lose that sheen very quickly. So it's significant for that. But it's also significant because it allows Republicans, I think, to to begin to basically pursue the end of Clinton, which is, you know, many of them are explicit about that 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 is their aim to end the Clinton presidency in, in any way possible. Yeah. And one of those was through the government shutdown, right? Which was in which year? When was that? Yeah, so that was in 95-96, the northern winter of 95-96. Today, as of noon, almost half of the federal government employees are idle. The government is partially shutting down because Congress has failed to pass the straightforward legislation necessary to keep the government running without imposing sharp hikes in Medicare premiums and deep cuts in education and the environment. And that, just by way of explanation, the the U.S. government works in this kind of, um, I guess it's yet yet another strange way that it works in that they don't have budgets like we do. They don't have budget cycles. They have basically have to pass legislation every year to keep funding going. And a way that Republicans, in this case, which you know they've done on Republicans and Democrats have done on on multiple occasions, is to refuse to pass that legislation so that basically the federal government has no money and it can't do anything. It can't pay federal workers, which are you know people who work in airports and that kind of thing. So it kind of grinds the government to a halt because it can't get any money supply. Okay, so that's one really powerful way in which the Republicans could work and, you know, 
worked quite effectively to destabilise and undermine Clinton and his, his legitimacy. But as I understand it, that shutdown was significant for another reason that no one really knew about at the time, because that was also when Bill Clinton started his affair with Monica Lewinsky, which really is, is the event that gave the Republicans the pretext to launch an all-out assault on the Clinton, pres- on the Clinton presidency. Um, and that sort of blew up 97-98. I'm interested, Emma, in who was really leading the charge when it came to discrediting Clinton over Monica Lewinsky. So the the figurehead, I suppose, of, of that campaign is a guy called Kenneth Starr, who um, in the sort of early part of Clinton's second term is already investigating him for um, something called the Whitewater Scandal, which is a, another kind of really a conspiracy theory that amounts to nothing. But in the process of that investigation, Starr, as you say, kind of comes across this affair and so pursues that with... Um, Vicar, we might say. So Starr is a really controversial and really important figure in this time. And he is one of the, the many uh, men, mostly men, of this period who are reappearing under the Trump administration. So these kind of, I guess, um, Reagan Republicans who are out to destroy Clinton are also driving a lot of the politics, conservative politics today, and are still, it has to be said, driven by a visceral hatred for both of the Clintons. Okay, so that's really interesting. I mean, for context for anyone who's listening, Emma's kind of provided me with this roll call of names who have reappeared under the Trump administration. The first of those, and we'll get through them, the first of those is Kenneth Starr. So where has Kenneth Starr reappeared in the, you know, the late, late, late teens, late 20 teens. <laughs> so I still don't know what to call that decade. Yeah, it's a tricky one, isn't it? So, so Starr, as I said, he's, he's heading the investigation, the impeachment investigation into Bill Clinton. He wrote the report that becomes the basis for the articles of impeachment. So he's pursuing a president. Um, he's hoping to impeach and remove a president from office. He reappears, um, in kind of the opposite incarnation as, as many of these figures have done, he was hired by Donald Trump um, on his defence team during the impeachment investigation of the current president. Okay. All right. So there's one. Another name you've put on my, on this list is Brett Kavanaugh. That's right. So, so Brett Kavanaugh is who's Trump's um, most recent appointment to the Supreme Court of the United States. Um, Listeners might remember that really controversial hearings where he's, accused of assaulting um, Christine Blasey Ford, who testifies before Congress, and you get these iconic pictures of Kavanaugh sort of pointing and screaming and even crying. He made his name in politics early as um, in the 90s, working on the impeachment investigation under independent counsel Kenneth Starr. So he, again, is a kind of long-time Clinton adversary um, and then came back to work for... He, he also worked for Bush Senior and came back into politics to work for Bush Junior. So, again, you know, he's, he's popping up again and again. Also went to Yale Law School. So, what, another, another resident of the swamp. I, f- I find that really interesting because, you know, my, my impression of, of Kavanaugh having, you know, watched, watched those confirmation hearings for the Supreme Court... And having heard a little bit about his role in the impeachment investigation of Bill for Bill Clinton, is that he was kind of a kind of a, a dirty operator. Like he was he was running a lot of dirty tricks. But what you're saying to me is that actually no, he's part. He's always been part of the Republican establishment, and 
that the star investigation it wasn't just dredging up dirt it was it was planned politically and it was planned by people who are you know embedded in the respectable institutional networks of you know of, of the ivy league, ivy league schools and the republican party so I'm surprised by their having so much, you know, respectability in the 90s, because that certainly wasn't my impression of it coming into this conversation. Yeah, look, I, I mean, I think that's true. It's not necessarily true of someone like Starr, who's a kind of um, yeah, very controversial figure. You know, his report is famous because it's kind of so sexually explicit. But absolutely, the, the people working underneath him, like Brett Kavanaugh, are, you know, kind of ostensibly respectable figures who work for multiple presidents, who are kind of... Um, career lawyers in different administrations and and they are very much part of the effort to unseat Clinton but there is this kind of sheen I suppose of that respectability politics yeah and look I think another another name on the list you've given me that probably illustrates the point well is Dershowitz that's right so Alan Dershowitz is another um very prominent lawyer in the in the 90s the mid 90s and and going on who has reappeared again um as most recently as a kind of talking head um, and hired by Trump in to defend him. He is famous for defending O.J. Simpson in 95, being part of O.J. Simpson's defence. Um, later, Jeffrey Epstein. And then, yeah, and then Harvey Weinstein as well. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> That's, yeah, look, I don't know if I have anything. Oh, I'm just, I'm just absolutely galled by that. You've, you've floored me, Em. Um... Okay, cool. So I've kind of talked about how the Republicans as a party were working to discredit Bill Clinton. Let's move on to talking about the internet and specifically the Drudge Report. Um, Tell me, who was Matt Drudge and what role did he play in this campaign against Clinton? That's right. So the the media and particularly Drudge are crucial in kind of understanding the the broader politics of the 1990s, I think, and and particularly conservative politics and how they worked, I think, so effectively against Clinton. So so Matt Drudge is actually the guy who broke the Lewinsky story. So he started the Drudge Report in 1995, which is a kind of, um, I guess, an an internet-based newsletter. And he breaks the Lewinsky story where other outlets have refused to touch it, where the so-called mainstream media has refused to touch this story, which they have a long tradition of doing. You know, Clinton isn't the only kind of philandering president. As we know, there have been many philandering presidents and, you know, JFK is the most obvious one where, where everybody knew what he was doing, all the media knew around him what was happening, but they didn't report it because, you know, for whatever reason it's regarded as not relevant to the presidency. Drudge refuses to buy into that. He's a a kind of virulent conservative, anti-Clinton. So he breaks the story and it then breaks into the mainstream. So Drudge in 95 is kind of, I guess it's kind of signaling almost the birth of the alt-right media in, in tandem with the rise of the internet. Yeah. And I mean, obviously in a very different context and the internet was a very different it was a very different medium in that time because this was, you know, Drudge issuing issuing this news globally through the very unidirectional means of his website. It wasn't it wasn't social media, and it certainly wasn't circulated and disseminated and reinterpreted in the way that something like that would be today. But I think that's really interesting that you do, you know, it was it was the right and it was the Republicans who sort of inaugurated this way of working around the mainstream media. And I think, if anything, that division 
has has only, it's only sharpened recently, right? But you can definitely see its origins in the 1990s in the Drudge Report. That's right, and it, and it is important to acknowledge that it's not just the Drudge Report. Fox News is actually established in 1996, which of course is now playing an enormous role in the kind of toxic media politics of of today. Um, so Fox News is huge. Infowars is also started in in 1999 at the end of the decade, and then Breitbart, which um, people might recall, is as the kind of um, I guess of helping Trump rise to power. In 2015, under the leadership of Stephen Bannon, Breitbart's not established until 2005, but it was actually established by Matt Drudge's first assistant, Andrew Breitbart. So you can absolutely see the kind of beginnings of the alt-right media, their origins in the mid-1990s and their explosion because of this kind of visceral hatred of Democrats. And particularly the Clintons, which I think is particularly the point you made. Particularly the Clintons. Yeah. And I think to try to sort of tie all those threads together, it is what we can see here between these examples of Republican dirty tricks campaigns, which were using the the legitimate institutions of government in the USA, and this rise of the alt-right media is that, I guess, it's, it's been a presence in American politics for since well before Trump. And perhaps this is another case where we shouldn't be quite so surprised at what's happened in this decade just gone, because the elements were always there. They were just waiting to be re- to, to recombine in you know what turned out to be a much more toxic and ultimately destructive form. I think we'll leave it with leave it leave the right there for now. But what we want to come back to in the next instalment is where I think it's certainly arguable that the American right. And the Democrats, including the Clintons, actually found common ground. And that is on the on the issue of global capitalism and America's role in the world. Barely Getting By is supported and produced by RMIT University. Original music by Stuart Cullen. <laughs>